you have your Bible this morning, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of Malachi, chapter 2, and verse number 10. We're going to break just for this morning from our Jonah series to give consideration to a Father's Day-specific uh, passage and uh, Father's Day-specific topic. I am uh, I'm not much on sermon titles. I'm not terribly creative in that way, as you have probably observed over time, but you have a doozy this morning. The title of our message is Systemic Injustice and the Role of Fathers, and ho oh, how that creates lots of conversation in the present climate. As a Christian, you really shouldn't have an issue with the concept of systemic injustice, assuming it is properly defined, in spite of the fact that much of what I hear is concerned with the very concept of systemic injustice within Christian circles. In the Bible, especially the prophets, and more especially in the minor prophets, the scripture often speaks of unjust systems and the need for the moral reform of those systems. However, you should find yourself often revolting against the worldly systems that seek to be implemented in the place of what are often suggested unjust systems. The responses by the culture to systemic injustice and later described as social injustice are unwholesome, unhealthy, and out of step with the teaching of the Bible. Often prevailing unrighteousness is not the product of a given system, but the values, the worldly ungodly values adopted by a society. Hence the term social injustice. Long before the language of unjust systems or systemic injustice or social justice were ever a part of the vernacular in vogue politically the way they are now, Bible scholars and especially Old Testament Bible scholars were talking about the issues of systemic injustice and social justice from a biblical perspective in a healthy and well-defined way. When the culture seeks to co-opt the language of the Bible, good, wholesome, helpful language, we don't cede that language or cave to the newfangled definitions of certain terminology. Rather, we go back to the Bible and we define the terms according to the teaching of the Bible. Nor can we afford to dismiss ourselves from critically important conversations unfolding around us in the culture. Now, I want you to know that I didn't just wake up this morning and decide I wanted to preach a controversial sermon on systemic injustice and social justice. I raise these issues because the Father's Day holiday is directly related. The thesis of our passage and the chief proposition I want to make to you today is that if you really want to resolve the issues of systemic injustice, if what we really want is the pursuit of social justice, it must necessarily begin by putting fathers back in the home and by putting families back together. That is essentially the teaching of our passage and Malachi's answer to the prevalent social injustices of his day. Virtually all of the minor prophets are dealing with similar issues. Now note that even as we deal with topics that often fall under the heading of culture war, 
that my interest is in no way primarily or exclusively in moral reform. This is a crooked and perverse generation. The poor you'll have with you always, Jesus said. There's always going to be some degree of injustice that we bear with in this life. My goal is gospel transformation. But at the same time, the connections between a departure from biblical principles and the kind of moral decay we're constantly exposed to in the 24-hour news cycle are so apparent that these attest to the truthfulness of the biblical account. The precision with which Malachi assesses our society is uncanny. And it undergirds, it ought to strengthen our confidence in the truthfulness of, our, of God's word. And this provides for us a platform for attesting by witness to the truthfulness of the gospel and the answers of God's word to every issue that might arise within our life. These are worldview issues. And as Christians, we must get them right. Malachi chapter 2 Beginning in verse 10, if you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Here's what God's word says. Don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has acted treacherously and a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. To the man who does this, may the Lord cut off any descendants from the tents of Jacob, even if they present an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. Yet you ask, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have acted treacherously against her, though she was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't the one God make us with a remnant of his life breath? And what does the one seek? A godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously against the wife of your youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel... He covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. There is so much of what we are observing in recent days reflected in the passage before us not just with regards to marriage and family, but other issues as well. For instance, look back to verse 10. Don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? The language of treachery is all over our passage. To be Treacherous means to betray, to deceive, to abandon, to neglect, or to otherwise commit an act of violence against another. Why then do we abandon, neglect, betray, commit acts of violence against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? One of the things that you'll find consistently in the passage before us is that Malachi draws the direct connection between our everyday life and our religious life. 
we've created this false distinction, this line of separation, these compartments in our life where we have our Sunday morning self, where we're one person, and then our rest of the week self, when in many cases we're altogether different person. Malachi is saying to us again and again and again, there can be no line of separation between who we are in Christ and all of our life. In dealing treacherously one with another, Malachi says, you have profaned the covenant of our fathers. He will say later in our passage, your acts of worship are unacceptable on the Lord's day because you have profaned the covenant with every other day in dealing treacherously with those around you. The key point I want you to see actually comes in the first two questions that are asked. Don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Followed, obviously, as we've said, by why then do we act violently or treacherously against one another. Here's what Malachi is pointing out. That all acts of violence have a theological basis. Malachi says, don't you know that we're all created in the image of God? Don't you know that we're all created equally? And the only way to legitimize or justify or in the moment rationalize an act of treachery or violence against another is to depart theologically in your mind from the simple reality that we have in fact been created in the image of God. It should come as no surprise whatsoever to Christian folk who know the Bible that in an increasingly unbelieving society, violence would be itself at an all-time high. It matters not whether we're talking about issues of racism or unborn children. The value of a life is not assigned by the culture around it. This is precisely what Malachi is referencing in our passage. The value of a human life is an intrinsic part of being created in the image of God. Malachi warns that a departure from this reality is to set oneself up for the justification of their acts of treachery or violence against another. It seems likely, given the movement of argument in our passage, that many within Israel, many of those specifically addressed by Malachi, would have been almost altogether unaware of the treacherous nature of their disobedience. But I want you daddies to come in real close and hear carefully what I want to say here. Your every act of disobedience... Your every act of, of unfaithfulness to the will and the word of God is like a pebble in a pond, creating ripples of impact in the lives of those within your circle of influence. There are no acts of disobedience that happen in a laboratory entirely insulated from influencing those around you in any shape, form, or fashion. The decisions that you make, even those that may seem or feel innocent, have direct bearing on those you've been given stewardship of for their protection and their provision. The second principle in verse 11 I want you to see. Malachi continues, noting Judah has acted treacherously and a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. To the man who does this, may the Lord cut off any descendants from the tents of Jacob, even if they present an offering to the Lord of hosts. 
The indictment here in verse 11 is that Judah has profaned the sanctuary by marrying herself to the daughters of foreign gods. The background or the context of Malachi's prophecy is a situation in which many of the men of Israel have neglected or altogether put away the wife of their youth, their Israelite wives, in exchange for wives who descended from the pagan or neighboring nations of Israel. This is a problem on a number of different levels. For one, under the old covenant, God had prescribed that Israel was not to intermarry with those neighboring nations because those neighboring nations had pledged their allegiance to neighboring gods, to pagan gods. In the new covenant, we have a similar warning, not one specific to ethnic background or even race, but one specific to one's religious devotion or spiritual life. Paul warns that we as believers ought not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What relationship has righteousness with unrighteousness and the motive and insight of God is afforded us in the following line, for you may be bound by your affections. Israel was warned against intermarrying with pagan peoples, and so we under the new covenant have likewise been warned against intermarrying with pagan peoples because we have a tendency to be bound by our affections. I often say somewhat sarcastically, everyone has convictions until someone gets their feelings hurt. Deep and abiding convictions about a specific issue until that issue lands a little closer to home than what we might have expected it to otherwise land. This is the very phenomenon that Paul and the Corinthian correspondence and God under the old covenant is warning again and again and again against. But in the case of Israel, as it is observed in Malachi 2, 11 and 12, the men of Israel have been driven by their selfish desires to fulfill the sensual lust of the flesh. And so they have deviated from the proper outlet for those desires, which is the covenant of marriage. And they've taken to themselves pagan wives, the daughters, as they're described here, of foreign gods. Now, here's what I want you to take note of. Sexual ethics always played a part in Israel's unfaithfulness. And the reason this is a critical observation to make is because in the majority of instances, for those who defect the faith, sexual ethics is a critical component part of one's defection. There is a story in the book of Numbers chapter 22 and following. In fact, it covers a few chapters in the Numbers account, and we know through biblical history that this story was even built upon in oral tradition beyond even what is stated in the Scripture, which suggests that it plays a critical part in Israel's history, that that oral tradition would have been a part of daily conversation and instruction in the temple and later in the synagogue. The story is of the prophet of God named Balaam, and his interactions with a Moabite king named Balak. Now Balak, as the Moabite king, is observing as Israel makes their way across the desert wilderness in the direction of Moab, headed for the land that flowed with milk and honey, the promised land. And Israel, by the providence of God, is mowing down any enemy army that comes against them. The power that Israel's army exhibits is clearly not of themselves. The hand of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is upon them. So Balak calls for their prophet. And for a handsome sum, he invites Balaam 
to make a decree against the armies of Israel. Now, Balak doesn't understand how prophecy works. He thinks the prophet speaks it, and then it happens. The reality is God has determined before the foundation of the world the course of his people. He therefore gives the prophet some insight as to what the future holds, and then the prophet makes his declaration. So there's this back and forth, at least three cycles of Balak making an offering, Balaam turning him back. But eventually, Balaam relents. He informs Balak as to how prophecy works. I don't get to write the news, I just deliver the message, Balaam says. But he encourages or counsels Balak. If you really want to see the demise of the people of Israel, here's what you must do. Entice them to intermarry with the women of Moab. And they'll succumb to that sexual enticement. And they'll so compromise their standing with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he'll make me say what you want me to say in the first place. I can't concoct the message, he says. But if you can merely entice them to sexual sin, you'll contrive a scenario in which the bow of God's wrath is necessarily bent against them. Now, this is a necessary observation for a variety of reasons. Not the least of which... Statistics tell us that not a few of you, but many of you men in this room are dabbling with, you're toying around with secret sexual sins. There, there's, there's certain sins that I thank God I don't understand or have deep insight to, and I pray to God I never will. I do not understand the incredible phenomenon of men, and for that matter women, giving themselves over to the sin of pornography. I just don't, I don't, I don't get it. But there are many of you in this room who, who, who might be said to be struggling with it, but the reality is you've given up the struggle a long time ago. And you've convinced yourself no harm, no foul. It's a secret sin. No one knows. Even perhaps as serious, some of you flirting in your mind with the idea of special attention from someone in the workplace or otherwise. You've begun to toy around with the idea of adultery, at least entertaining that notion. And I want you to know that you are no exception to the rule. You continue to invest your time in meditating on those enticements and eventually your heart will follow the investment of your time, your meditations, your fixation, your obsession. Your heart will follow soon after. And though right now, this morning, in this specific moment, you cannot imagine leaving behind the faith, defecting altogether, abandoning the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. You continue to give this sin its head, and it will overwhelm you. It will have you. It will own you. Like the sin of loving money, as Jesus describes it in the Sermon on the Mount, sexual sin always tends toward mastery, and it itself will not be satisfied until it has your whole heart. You begin in sexual sin because of your lust, but you must know that sexual sin lusts for your affections and it will not be satisfied. Its thirst will not be quenched until it has your whole heart. 
Sexual sin for Israel always played a part in her eventual unfaithfulness. And in our society, so often, sexual ethics is a huge factor in departing the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Societies often judge, well, they'll judge a faith, a religion, on the basis of its benefit to society. This is modern-day pragmatism. If it's good, if it's functional, we'll, we'll roll with it, which is not a good approach, mind you, but let's go there for a moment. Thousands of years of human history attest to the reality that the proper, healthy, wholesome outlet for sexual desire, what is best for the individual, what is best for the children, and what is best for a society is a heterosexual couple in the covenant of marriage for all of their days, investing themselves in the well-being of their children. There is a great deal of what I have said this morning and will say in the remainder of our time that doesn't necessarily have to be on the basis of a statement of faith. Basic observation, general common sense can observe and see that what God has prescribed for us is functionally and spiritually and in every other conceivable way the best way for us and the best way for everyone. Here's a third principle. Look to verse 13. This is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. Yet you ask, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have acted treacherously against her, though she was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Here's the principle. Faithfulness to the family and true worship are inseparably connected. What Malachi is saying in these two verses is that you can come here and you can sing to the top of your lungs. You can raise your hands and get all teary-eyed and emotional. You can read every devotional book Walmart has to offer. You can attend any small group meeting you want to attend. But if you are mistreating your family, your acts of worship are altogether unacceptable before King Jesus. And this is not exclusively an old covenant concept. Peter essentially affirms the same under the new covenant. He warns husbands that if you're mistreating your wife and expecting that your prayers are getting any further than the ceiling of the room in which you pray, you got another thing coming. He warns husbands and fathers that your prayers stand to be hindered by the mistreatment of your family. Faithfulness to the family and true worship are inseparably connected. We might put it this way. You cannot have a meaningful ongoing relationship with Jesus while neglecting or mistreating your family. Every indication is that these men were sincere. They're described in our passages weeping and groaning at the altar, pleading that God would accept their sacrifice of praise, but their worship was unacceptable to the Lord for the treatment of their family. Your sincerity cannot be traded for, bartered for, obedience to the will and the word of God. That's, that's just not an adequate exchange. 
First time I ever had to deal with a church discipline issue. I realize church discipline has all sorts of negative connotations. Try it on when you're a 23-year-old pastor in his first year. And I'm, and I'm dealing with a couple that's almost 60. When you're 23, 60 is almost dead. And, he, and I'm dealing with this, right? I'm dealing with this. And I, I, I can't imagine the face that I made when one of the parties explained to me, I believe the Lord is leading me to get this divorce because he wants me to be happy. And I can't tell you the number of times, I don't have fingers enough to count the number of times that I've heard that same mantra from prospective divorcees over the course of the last 15 years or so of ministry. The tendency, the mantra, the slogan in response to such foolishness is often, God cares more about our holiness than our happiness. But I really hate that saying because it sets up this false distinction, this separation between holiness and happiness in our life. You can't be happy in Jesus apart from the pursuit of holiness. I can, however, say emphatically and without exception that the Spirit of God will never, ever, ever lead you to do anything that directly violates his expressed will as recorded in his word. There is no new word or exception for you in your situation. Now, this person was sincere, and you might have observed them in the leadership of our little church and went, that is a spiritual person. But the reality was that her heart was far, far from God. And the neglect of her family was proof positive that this was the reality for her. Listen to me, men and women. I know without exception who God predetermined to be your husband. If you're here as a husband, you're here as a wife, I know who God determined before the foundation of the world to be your spouse. The person whose name is on your marriage license. That's who it is. And I know without qualification or exception what God would have you to do, even in the face of some difficulty, he'd have you to persevere and seek reconciliation. And even under the worst of circumstances, to seek the spirit of God that he might, by the power of the gospel, restore even the years the locusts have taken away. God has never and he will never lead that you would do anything whatsoever that would violate his command for you. It matters not how sincere or earnest you are. Your happiness does not take precedent over the call of God on our life to personal holiness. There's a couple of things here which I feel really passionately about in these last two verses of our passage. There's more, but time won't afford us to deal with the remainder of verses 10 through 14, each of them worthy of our camping with for a bit. Verse 15, didn't the one God make us with a remnant of his life breath? And what does the one seek? A godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully and don't act treacherously against the wife of your youth. Verse 15 is one of those verses in the Old Testament that is notoriously difficult to translate. In fact, if you've got a good translation that you're reading from, 
You probably have some footnotes at the bottom of the page or in the margin of your Bible that provides for you some alternate ways of translating verse 15. It is so notoriously difficult to translate. The favorite note that I saw on, uh, on this verse this week was just HB obscure, which means we're doing the best we can. That's basically what that note means in your Bible. A couple of alternate translations for ver verse 15 read, did the one not make them? So their flesh and spirit belong to him. Or my preferred translation, no one who does this even has a remnant of the spirit in him. The present translation, the one we've only now read and the one the majority of you are reading along with, reads again, didn't the one God make us with a remnant of his life breath? And what does the one seek? A godly offspring. In other words, God made us. In, in the image of God, he created us male and female. He made us for the institution of marriage. And one of God's primary objectives in creating men and women and the institution of marriage is that resulting from those marriages would be godly children. The strong implication of our passage is that the best environment for raising godly children is the natural family as prescribed by God. Now, there are exceptions. There are times when God makes something beautiful out of the messes that we can create for ourselves. There are times when family takes its form by noble purposes in noble, honorable ways. It may not be a biological, natural family, but it can be an honorable thing. My own immediate family is an example of this. By God's mercy and to his praise, if his will is done as we anticipate, we are less than one month from the finalization of an adoption of our youngest boy. The piecing together, the knitting together of a family by unnatural means, but one we anticipate God will bless in a remarkable way. Sometimes families take their form around some dreaded decisions that have been made in the past. The second only to my conversion, the single most consequential moment in my life was my parents' divorce. But, but for that divorce, I would not have the sweetest stepmother in all the world without whom I don't know what in the world I would have ever or would ever do. Sometimes God just takes our messes and makes something absolutely beautiful from them. But in principle, the rule stands the best situation, the best environment for rearing children with hearts well conditioned to receive and flourish in the gospel is a husband and wife bound together for all their days. Listen to me. In a congregation like ours, there are without question couples who are here who are toying around with the idea of divorce. And you have convinced yourself that either yourself or your children or your church family or your extended family are insulated against the decisions that you make. Listen to me. There is more at stake than child support and alimony payments in the decisions you're poised to make. Those decisions have direct bearing on your children and the outcomes in their life. God's design in the institution of marriage as he prescribed it was to rear godly children. There's a fifth principle in verse 16 that's not really far from the fourth Verse 16 says, if he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. 
when I hear most of the conversation today on social injustice, I just roll my eyes, like straight up. I can't take serious. I don't care what political party they're associated with. It, because the only thing that anyone wants to focus on is what is politically advantageous to the speaker. And the reason I know this is because if anyone really wanted to do something, they'd be talking about these issues. It is the scandal of our day that we refuse to acknowledge the hellishness that has been unleashed on our society and the children of our country by the sexual revolution and the divorces that are a product of said revolution. Let me read some statistics to you. 85% of children and teens with behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 70% of all adolescent patients in drug and alcohol treatment centers come from homes without fathers. Children without a father in the home are five times more likely to live in poverty than children from a two-parent home. You want to resolve the issues of poverty in America, you're never going to do that with welfare checks and food stamps. You put daddies back in homes. You put daddies back in homes and you put families back together. And virtually all of our issues in poverty have been resolved in one fell swoop. Children without a father in the home are nine times more likely to drop out of school. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 95% of prison inmates are from fatherless homes. Did you hear that? 95% of prison inmates are from fatherless homes. Listen, listen to this. Child abuse is 40 times more likely when a single parent finds a new partner. Let me just pause and say a little word right here. This is not from the passage. This is from your pastor, but it's good counsel. There are a lot of you here this morning who are single parents, and, and there's optimism, there's hope that one day you will be married again. And I hope the best and that all works out well. I'm, I'm not addressing that, that part. But you better know that he's the one or she's the one before you go introducing them to your children. There are few things that disgust me or frustrate me anymore than the children of single parent families being introduced and reintroduced to a constant cycle of boyfriends and girlfriends on the mere whim of a mom or a dad who's seeking to satisfy his or her personal desires with very little, if any, concern whatsoever for the well-being of those children in the home. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Forty times more likely to be abused in a, in a single-parent family or home when the, when the parent finds a new partner. Children of divorce are twice as likely to struggle academically, behaviorally, and socially. Children living in homes with unrelated adults are 50 times more likely to die of, un, of inflicted injuries. 50 times. Children living with married biological parents have the lowest rate of abuse and neglect. Now listen, I, I get there are situations that that God uses, and, and I'm an example of that. I, I, I lived in most of my growing up years with people who are not my parents. 
lived with my grandparents, and many of you are living under similar circumstances, and some of you have been taken in by people that just cared for you. And there was a season in my life when it was from couch to couch and living room to living room, and I'm thankful to God for the generosity, the grace that was afforded me by parents of friends and grandparents of friends and just friends in general. But I, I'm, I'm telling you, it's a scenario. It's a scenario that is ripe for disaster. We, we wonder, we wring our hands, and we wonder why things are unfolding the way we are, the way they are. You put daddies back in homes and you put families back together and so much of this mess is resolved in an instant. The, the reason we have mass shootings is not primarily because we have AR-15s. It's because we do not have fathers in homes. Now, I'm not telling you that every child in a fatherless home takes an AR-15 and mows down a crowd. But I am telling you that every child that takes an AR-15 and mows down a crowd comes from a fatherless home. That's a statistical reality. Now, we're, we're never going to fix these kinds of issues with legislation. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. But the darkness, the blackness that this backdrop presents is a real opportunity for us to be a city on a hill. I can remember as a small child knowing nothing of the gospel, but observing in a few friends that their families were intact. The police didn't come to Christmas gatherings. Their home was functional. They seemed to enjoy a certain measure of stability, even as a small boy. Just by basic observation, it was apparent to me something was different about this natural, functional family. And it was showing up in the lives of my friends, even in grade school. I'm telling you, there's a world of people around us, the victims of the sexual revolution, who know nothing of a godly father investing in them, nourishing, encouraging them, nothing of parents to be there for them, nothing of so much of what we have come to take for granted within healthy, whole, functional families who are looking to us and trying to discern in their heart what's different about them. It's an incredible platform for us to give declaration to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to hold forth to the world around us that in spite of our many shortcomings, the gospel has saved and has rectified an otherwise irreparable situation in our personal life. This, this is an opportunity for us to hold forth the soothing balm of the gospel. You know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just like you. I can get really indifferent toward my own sin and I can get really callous to the convicting power of the Spirit when it comes to respectable sin. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know what I mean. Whether you want to or not, you know what I mean. Unless you're far more spiritual than I am. But I'm telling you, there's something about when God brings my sins and shortcomings in parenting and marriage before me, it cuts like a knife. The idea that I would make decisions, that I would take action that would be harmful to my wife or my children, oh, that's heavy conviction. And I want you to know this morning that regardless of what you have done and dreadful effect that it's had on your wife or your family, daddies, I want you to know that the soothing balm of the gospel is sufficient to heal all wounds. That there's a place for you at the cross 
and that the indwelling power of God's Holy Spirit can enable obedience in you that is so far beyond your natural ability, you might become altogether unrecognizable as a husband and a father. But I can guarantee you on the opposite, that if you persist in your sin, it will only result in disaster. You think you've got it all fixed, everything under control. The reality is you have a tiger by the tail, and it's just a matter of time before it turns and devours you. And it'll take your family with you. That's what's so unfortunate. It always does. We have an opportunity today to write our hearts before God, to ask that by the power of the gospel, he would redeem the messes that we've made. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. God, help us to be faithful husbands and fathers and give us families that look like Jesus. God, for the broken family and the years-long struggle, would you bring reconciliation and restore what has been robbed of them? Lord, for the one given to sin, would you grant a portion of your spirit help them in repentance and faith to rectify the mess that they've made. God, I ask that you would just bring strong conviction. That you would help us, Lord, to, to have a worldview shaped not by the constant indoctrination of the culture around us, but by the teaching of your word. Help us to know how to digest and process so much of what we see from a crooked and perverse generation. Help us to help others to see how this aligns with the teaching of God's word and what you've warned us the outcomes of immorality and departure from your word would, would look like for us. Help us to run to Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.